This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me in the second and third segments of today's program is returning guest, Mr. Carl Denninger. And if you're on Medicare or approaching Medicare age, you'll want to stay tuned for the third segment of today's program, during which I will talk to Carl about his prediction of major changes to the Medicare program that will have to come about, and his target date is just three years down the road. So you'll certainly want to stay tuned for that conversation. I also want to remind you that if you've not yet visited the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, you'll want to do so because visiting that website allows you to download the RLA app. Once you have the RLA app installed on your computer or smartphone, you'll then get access to the podcast version of this radio program. You'll get access to our weekly newsletter called Portfolio Watch. In Portfolio Watch, we examine what's going on in the economy and the financial markets and tell you how you and your money may be affected. You'll also get access to what has up to this point been a client-only feature. It is an update webinar that we conduct every Monday live, every Monday at noon live, but it's recorded and the replay is available on the app anytime you'd like to get it. So to plug into the RLA app and get this free resource, all you need to do is visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and follow the instructions on the website. Now, if you have been a long-term listener to this program, you know that I have long advocated for a two-bucket approach to managing assets. Now, I first recommended this more than five years ago when the book New Retirement Rules was released. And since the release of that book, and since a lot of the events that were forecast in that book have now come to pass and many are now occurring, there have been other individuals and companies in the financial industry that have begun to promote what they label a two-bucket approach to managing assets. Now, the most recent book, Revenue Sourcing, clarifies this two-bucket approach, which is unique. Maybe not to the casual observer, but when you dig into it, the differences between the two-bucket approach and other approaches to asset management become very obvious. Now, the premise of the two-bucket approach is simply this. We are nearing the end of a credit cycle, and we are nearing the end of a currency cycle. Now, the fact that we're nearing the end of a credit cycle and nearing the end of a currency cycle at roughly the same time is a fact, I believe it's a fact, that goes unnoticed and is unrecognized by many in the financial industry, whether they are advisors or analysts. Sadly, in my view, this means their clients miss out on this really important point as well. Now, once the currency cycle busts and resets, 
Traditional asset management and planning strategies will likely fail those who use them. Let me repeat that. Once the currency cycle busts and resets, if you're doing things the traditional way, you could find yourself on the outside looking in. Now, if you're not familiar with what a credit cycle is or what a currency cycle is, let me take just a few minutes to explain. A credit cycle ends when the system has reached its capacity to service debt. Now, take your individual situation for an example. You have a level of income that comes into your household every month. Now, you may have debt as well, but here's the point. You can only accumulate or take on debt to the extent that you have income to be able to make the payments on the debt. At a certain point, you cannot accumulate any more debt because you don't have enough income to make the payments. A credit cycle ends when collectively, businesses and individuals don't have enough income to make the payments on the debt that has been collectively accumulated. Now, credit cycles in the private sector happen a lot more frequently than they do in the public sector. In the public sector, at the municipal level, at the state level, those governments have to operate with a balanced budget. So those governments operate in much the same way as an individual or business in that debt can only accumulate to the point in those situations as long as there's enough tax revenues to service the debt. In a state government situation, for example, the income is tax revenues, and debt can only accumulate to the point that there are tax revenues to service the debt. At the federal level, it's a much different situation. At the federal level, fiscal responsibility or the notion of fiscal responsibility, has been abandoned. And policymakers have resorted to creating money literally out of thin air to paper over budget gaps. Now, once the decision to print money begins, the currency cycle bust begins as well. Now, the currency cycle bust, history teaches us, will progress slowly at first, but then over time, as money printing intensifies, this cycle feeds on itself and ultimately it accelerates into the final bust and reset. Now, there's some evidence that we are moving closer to a reset. Alistair McLeod, a past guest here on the program, recently published an article titled, China is Killing the Dollar. Mr. McLeod reported that on September 3rd, just a few weeks ago, the state-owned Chinese newspaper, Global Times, ran a front-page article featuring a quote from a professor at the Shanghai University of Finance and Economics. The professor said, China and this is a quote, China will gradually increase its holdings of U.S. debt under normal circumstances. 
But of course, China might sell all of its U.S. bonds in an extreme case like a military conflict. So here's the professor openly stating that China has not ruled out the possibility of selling all its U.S. bonds in an extreme case. Now, Alistair points out that this professor's statement was obviously sanctioned as front-page news by the Chinese government because the newspaper is state-owned. Now, Mr. McLeod commented, he said, well, China has already taken the top off its U.S. Treasury holdings. The announcement that China is prepared to escalate the financial war against America is very serious. The message should be clear. China is prepared to collapse the U.S. Treasury market. In the past, apologists for the U.S. government have said that China has no one to buy its entire holdings. The most recent suggestion is that China's Treasury holdings will be put in trust for COVID victims, a suggestion, if enacted, that would undermine foreign trust in the dollar and could bring the dollar's reserve role to a swift conclusion. For the moment, Mr. McLeod writes, these are peacetime musings. However, at the time of financial war, if China put her entire holding on the market, treasury yields would be driven up dramatically unless someone like the Fed steps in to buy the lot. Now, if China were to take this bold step of liquidating nearly a trillion dollars in U.S. government bonds, they would likely not do it alone. It would likely mean that just about every other country holding U.S. government bonds would follow suit. Now, if the Fed were to step in and buy the lot, the question is, where would they get the money? Well, the same place the Fed always gets the money. They would create it. They would print it, which would, again, accelerate the currency cycle, the currency bust cycle. So what would happen? Well, the dollar would continue to buy less. And what happens as the credit cycle bursts? Typically, that is deflationary, which means the dollar might buy more. So we have this collision course. We have these dual realities in that we're nearing the end of a credit cycle, which is typically deflationary, which means the dollar buys more. And we're nearing the end of a currency cycle, which means the dollar will continually buy less. Well, in the last segment of the program today, I'm going to share with you my forecast as far as deflation and inflation and how it will play out. And I, I would encourage you to stay tuned for that. Let me remind you, though, that if you've not yet gotten a copy of the Revenue Sourcing book that talks about the two-bucket approach to managing assets, the approach that takes into account these dual realities, I'd like to invite you to get your free copy of the book. All you have to do to get it is go to revenuesourcingbook.com and let us know where to mail your copy of the book, and we would be glad to do that. Revenuesourcingbook.com is the website. I will be back after these words with Mr. Carl Denninger. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen, and joining me again on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. Carl is a returning guest. I would encourage you to check out his blog at market-ticker.org, market-ticker.org. And uh, Carl, welcome back to the program. Oh, thank you very much. 
Carl, you know, uh, we were talking a bit before we uh, started our recorded interview today that uh, it seems that the lockdown response to what was to be a serious health threat has turned out to be an overreaction that has caused a lot of economic damage from which we will never recover. So let's start with, uh, you know, the, the response. Give us your take. I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is that we have an awful lot of science. This goes back almost 200 years on how epidemics and viruses and bacterial uh, transmission of things behave. And we essentially live in a post-scientific world today. We have taken study that has been done over decades. Um, for example, masks. Uh, there was a seminal 1981 study that showed that when you took them out of operating rooms, that infection rates actually went down. Uh, now, you wouldn't believe that thinking about it. You know, you'd say, well, you know, you, you want your surgeon to have a mask on, right? Well, as it turns out, it doesn't do anything. Uh, and that was so controversial at the time that it generated over a dozen attempts to replicate the finding, and they all failed to find anything other than that. <laughs> okay, so so we've had you know we've had forty years of science trying to say, oh no no no, that was an aberration, and uh, no, it's not. Um, but then the same thing has happened with the projections. We had all of these computer models that said that there were going to be two million people dead in the United States. And we're we're right around the two hundred thousand number. Well, that's a ten times overreaction. Okay, and it, it being having been a programmer for forty years now, I can tell you that witchcraft now lives in computer models. And if you want a particular outcome, or if you just happen to be biased a certain way, um, you can very easily uh, tell me to you know produce a computer model, and I'll I'll give you exactly what you want. And that and the really terrible part of it is that it doesn't have to be that you actually commissioned a study using a computer to give you a false result. It can simply be that the person that you commissioned it from has a pre-existing political or personal bias, and therefore they gave it to you, even though that wasn't what you asked for. So the, the fact that we're willing to put any reliance in these things when they continually fail to verify is astounding. We've seen the same thing with global warming, We've seen the same thing, you know, the projections of sea level rise and things like this. Uh, and and now we've seen it with COVID-19 and the economic damage that this has inflicted on not just the United States, but the world is astounding. So, Carl, let's talk about the, 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 the policy response to this. I mean, the Fed has printed another three and a half trillion out of thin air. They, the, the, the balance sheet has expanded. Uh, we see uh, massive numbers of small businesses that will never reopen. Um, how long are we going to be feeling the effects of this? Oh, this is permanent. I, I, I wish I could tell you it isn't. It, this, is, this is going to have permanent changes within our economic system, none of them good. Uh, the the distortions that have been placed into the system for this and the favoritism towards large corporate monopolist-style businesses like Amazon, Walmart, uh, some of the big grocery chains like Kroger, uh, the, these changes are not going to ever be reversed. And the destruction in purchasing power is going to accelerate. We've we've got a terrible problem here because people, you know, for a long time, we've had this idea 
And well, if Walmart comes to town, that's great because your, you know, your can of tomatoes is, you know, is 20 cents cheaper than it is at the, you know, at the local IGA, right? And that's, and you know, that's 20 cents, that's 20 cents. The problem is the IGA was paying the guy $15 an hour, Walmart pays 10. So, and, and groceries are, you know, 10, 12% of the average family's budget. Uh, for somebody at the lower end of the economic ladder, it's more. And for somebody at the higher end, it's less. So the person who makes $200,000 doesn't care. The 20 cents doesn't do him any good. And the person at the lower end of the economic ladder took a 30% whack in his income and, and, and saved, you know, 5% of his operating expenses. So he got hosed <laughs> in a bad way. And yet, you know, cheer, 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 property values go up. You know, and, and, and see, that's, but that's the distortion. And we've done it at such a scale now with uh, the, the deficit number for this year. We don't have the, the last months yet, but the scale of this thing is unbelievable. We've never seen anything like this before. And, on a, and on a, just on a percentage basis, all right, the only time that anything like this has ever been done before is when we were literally at war, like during World War II. Where, where you had to print the money and do what you had to do, or the country might not survive. So, Carl, when you take a look at the $3.5 trillion that has been printed, and you take a look at tax revenues, I mean, the, the, the operating deficit this year is approaching tax, revenue, uh, tax receipts. I mean, it's not going to be quite there, but this is the stuff of which banana republics are made. I mean, is this going to change next year, the following year? What do you see here as the end game? I don't, I don't see a good answer to this problem because just as an example, in my local area here, we have a, we're a tourist area. The overall receipts, the, the audit report for August just came out. The overall receipts down 17% year over year. Okay. That's huge. That's unbelievable. And, and the thing is, though, is where isn't it down? Well, Walmart isn't having any problems because you have to buy food, right? <laughs> so, you know, right. So, and they, then they were never forced to close. Um, but amusements are down 50%. Right? That's, I mean, that's, that's an insane number. And yet, where's the, you know, where do you get the recovery from on this? Um, I, I don't know, but this is going to ripple through the inflationary impact, people think, oh, you know, it won't be all that bad. It's not a big deal. Well, history tells us that that takes anywhere from 18 months to two years to show up in the, in the real economy and start hosing people. But it will hose us. There's no question about it. I think you're going to see the worst of that impact is going to start to show up in the middle of 2021, so the middle of next year. And by then, of course, you know, the COVID scare will be over and gone one way or another. And uh, yet the, the impact of what we did for what in many counties, is actually the flu on a statistical basis is is shocking. So, Carl, when when you take a look at <clears throat> inflation and hyperinflation, and you say that the, the the that your thought is that will kick in mid twenty twenty one, and incidentally, I've had many guests here on the program that agree with you. What, in your view, does that look like? I mean, the, the Fed has recently come out and said that, you know, we're going to let inflation run hot um, using this average inflation targeting method that's not really changing their policy. They're just now admitting it. Um, so, so what level of inflation do you see? Do you see 70s-style inflation? Do you see something worse? 
Well, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it, the, the you know what the Fed would like is for all of it to show up in stock prices and maybe housing, right? Which uh, having it show up in housing is is crushingly bad for most Americans. But for people that are listening to this show, it's it's a push. It doesn't do anything terrible or or good. It doesn't help you because until you die, if you sell a bubble house, you have to have somewhere to live. So you buy another one. And, and so statistically, it's done nothing. Okay, if, if your three hundred fifty thousand dollars house goes to five hundred, which has happened around here in the last seven months, that's a frightening number. Um, and I was to say, oh, you know, I'm going to take that hundred fifty thousand dollars and monetize it. Well, that's fantastic. Except, what am I going to do? Live in my truck? So, I, you know, I, unless you try to play a game where you literally go live in a trailer for a year or two and hope there's a crash, there's no way to profit from this. In stock prices, of course, it makes you feel good, but until you cash them out and pay the taxes on it, you can't spend it. And the the scary part, though, is is play, is other places where it may show up. And we're already seeing it places like lumber futures. Um, if it starts to get into the agricultural and um, and natural products areas, that's when it is going to bite you, no matter who you are. And and I'm. I'm thinking that we've probably got a, a 1970s style scenario setting up. But do remember one thing: what, what Powell said was, you know, you let inflation run a little over two percent. Okay, if you look at the historical average during the so-called modern era, actual actual realized inflation on the CPI, with all of its distortions, has run close to three on an average basis. So really what he said is he's going to do what he's been doing. <laughs> exactly. We're, official. we're not going to yeah, change anything. We're just going to admit what we've been doing. <laughs> yeah, he's been doing it for 100 years. So, I mean, you know, now all of a sudden we're going to say, well, you know, we're going to let it run a little over two. Well, the, the, the so-called mandate that they have, they claim is two. The fact is the, the factual mandate from Congress is zero. But we, we live not only in a post-scientific society, we live in a post-law society. These people have been sequentially breaking the law for 100 years, and nobody has done a thing to them for it. So why, why would they stop? <laughs> well, yeah, and, you know, you know Carl, you, when, you go, when you go back to inflation, I mean, and, and you mentioned that the CPI is, is, uh, is flawed. Certainly that's the case. But when you look at, you mentioned, like, lumber futures. Uh, you know, I have a... Uh, an acquaintance that uh, is in the construction business, and I think a sheet of OSB plywood, which is the cheap, you know, junky plywood, is up almost triple in price this year. And food prices uh, year over year, you know, when you compare April, May, June, July, I think food prices are up on average four to five percent every month. So we're starting to see it already. Oh yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, lumber futures are easy. The the the, the uh... Lumber futures have gone from uh, 251 in April to uh, 650 right now. Although, yeah. although today they're down a lot. Now, now they're back down around 600. But they they topped it almost 900. dollars Okay, and that's random board feet. So then you know you you look at the manufacturing costs and everything else. And you're talking about seven eight dollar two by fours. Yeah, crazy stuff. We're chatting today with Mr. Carl Denninger. His blog is market-ticker.org. I enjoy reading it. I would suggest that you go check it out as well. I'll continue my conversation with Carl when RLA Radio returns after these words. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me again on today's program is Mr. Carl Denninger. 
I would encourage you to check out Carl's work at market-ticker.org. And uh, Carl, you know, we're talking about uh, in the last segment that we're already seeing signs of inflation, and it's your view that we could see a 70s-style inflation event. Uh, one of the differences, though, is that on the federal level, you know, we're running significantly larger deficits. We have Social Security and Medicare that are underfunded to a much greater level. Uh, isn't this problem setting up to be a lot worse than what we saw in the 70s? I think it's going to bankrupt an awful lot of retired people that have bought into the idea that anything that's wrong with you will just go to the doctor and take a pill. Um, because Medicare, I've had a target of 2024 for its insolvency uh, that's been out there now for more than 10 years. And my original projection on this started in the 1990s when I was the CEO of an internet company. And my original target was only a few years off from there. So it it's been shockingly accurate, and that's across administrations, across Democrat and Republican, uh, you know, both congressional leadership and the, the presidency. So they've done nothing on either side of the aisle to do anything about this over the intervening now 30 years, and they're not going to until it blows up. And the problem is blows up means it won't be able to pay. So if you have the, the idea that, okay, you you don't like your cholesterol numbers, so you'll take a statin. That makes you diabetic. Then you'll go take a pill for diabetes. Then that starts to cause problems with your eyes. So, we'll, you know, you go down that road. If you go down that road, you're going to be in a lot of trouble because that, you, you're as you get older, you get forced onto Medicare at 65, whether you like it or not. And when you get forced onto Medicare, if Medicare cannot pay, then um, I hope you have an extra couple million dollars laying around, and most people don't. So that's going to become a huge problem, and it's going to become a problem within the next three years. So people need to keep this in mind. This is not solvable through fiscal and monetary policy at this point. It is only personally solvable for you by not needing it, because it is going to blow up. And anyone that thinks otherwise, you show me where there's any policy evidence that anyone's going to take this thing on. And by the way, Social Security is not the problem. For those who want to take the two and try to put them together, I, uh, sorry, that's just not the way it works. They're legally distinct programs that they have legally different funding sources, and they're running legally different deficits. Social Security is fixable and will be fixed. Uh, it is running a deficit right now, but their cash deficit's 13, 14%. That is resolvable without destroying your Social Security check. So that will get fixed because when we get into crunch time, like we did in the 1980s and the Greenspan Commission and all that, it'll get done. What they'll end up doing is lifting the salary cap and probably raising the tax by a quarter of a point, um, which is enough to, to put the system back on an even financial footing. But there is no way to solve the Medicare problem. It's it's financially out of control. It's running an eighty percent cash deficit right now. So, Carl, when somebody talk when somebody listens to this and they say three years we're going to have a problem, I mean that is literally right around the corner. Can you get into the math of this a little bit to the extent you're comfortable? Sure. Um, basically, the bottom line is you have receipts, you have tax receipts coming in, and you have. 
cash going out, okay, and this is all in the, the monthly treasury statements published by the Treasury Department. And and then you have the alleged lockbox, which of course we all know is not really a lockbox, right? It's the it's the bonds that the system holds. And as those get depleted, then what happens is is the, the Treasury Department redeems those back into the Treasury and issues public debt into the public markets. And so as a result, the system continues to be able to pay. And the reason that was put in like this is because there are times that there are baby booms and there are times that there are baby busts. And so as a result, you have large chunks of people in a particular demographic group that walk their way through the system until eventually they die. And the boomers are the ones that are doing it right now. That problem goes away in another 15 or 20 years. The problem is, the, and, and that's why Social Security is not going to blow up, no matter what anybody tries to tell you. However, Medicare originally was about 4% of GDP, okay, our entire medical spending. And, of course, Medicare is a piece of that that's for older people that are retired and those who are disabled. The problem is we went from 4% of GDP of medical spending to 20%. So we've multiplied what we spend by five, but we didn't multiply the tax receipts and the income that comes into the system by five. So you're running an 80% cash deficit, and we've been doing it for the last 10 or 15 years. But there is no way to rescue yourself from that once you get that far into the hole. It's just not possible. And so we are looking at a, a detonation and what they've done with COVID, where they have actually put payments into medical centers based upon being diagnosed with the virus, which, which of course, you know, leads to all kinds of incentives to call your death COVID-related, whether it was or not. You know, you get in a motorcycle accident, <laughs> you were a COVID death because it's worth thirteen thousand dollars in the hospital. They <laughs> can do that. Uh, you know, besides the distortion in the data that this causes, the bigger problem is is that thirteen grand comes right out of treasury, <laughs> and when you run out under current law, Medicare cannot pay what they cannot fund. They can't hit the general fund for that. So uh, it, it's not going to happen. And if you were to try to change that in the Congress, which right, I wouldn't be shocked if they were to attempt, the probable result of that is an immediate downgrade of the U.S. credit rating. So, Carl, when you use that number, uh, that, that's a shocking statistic that uh, healthcare spending was at one time 4% of economic output. It's now 20%. What percentage of that five-fold increase is due to the fact that medical technologies are better, our healthcare has improved, and what percentage of that is just due to the fact that we've created lots of healthcare administration, which are which is really designed to generate you know, profits for healthcare companies? Well, zero of it is due to technological advancement. And that's because technological advancement always makes things cheaper and better. <laughs> so, Good point. Good I mean, point. I mean, I, you know, hello, how about the, how about the phone that I'm talking to you on? It's a, it's a computer that's a hundred times more powerful than the one that put us on the moon. Um, and, and it fits in my pocket. The, the idea that, technology has somehow driven cost increases is insanity. What's driven cost increases is monopolistic practice and, and the, the abuse of the patent system and the ability to price fix, all of which has been enhanced by government action. And of course, that's a result of lobbying and, you know, and all the other people that get involved in doing it. 
But the reality of it is, is that that's where all the cost increases are coming from. And, and, and nobody wants to take it on because when you're $1 and five of the economy, you've got an amazing number of people lobbying for that. And what do you do if you cut? We could cut this at, by 60 to 70% tomorrow by getting rid of the administration and the price fixing. And if we were to do that, now that's not socialized medicine, by the way, that would make it worse. So if you were to go to Medicare for all, it would actually make the problem worse. Uh, but if we were to solve this problem, you'd have a recession like nobody's ever seen since the 1930s. Because what are you going to do? You're going to you're going to take 15 percent off the economy in an afternoon. So, Carl, when you talk about price fixing, I know there's going to be some people who say, "Wow, that's kind of a that's kind of a crude term." Can you give us an example of price fixing and and and, and how this actually is practically being played out? Well, sure. Um, I can get on an airplane, well, not right now because of COVID, fly <laughs> to Japan and have an MRI done. And, and over there, I will pay $100 to have the MRI done. Okay. Same MRI for an auto accident in Michigan is three grand. If you happen to need that MRI because you sprained your foot walking your dog, it's $1,500. The Japanese made the machine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so, could you tell me why it's thirty times the price in the United States? And the reason is because we have a complex system of laws, what are called con laws, certificate of need. We have price overt price fixing that goes on between insurance companies and providers. We have we have a, a patent system that's been ridiculously abused. We have medical certifications and uh, drugs that are of dubious benefit, but they're on patent versus the ones that we've had for you know 40 years that are off patent. And so we, you know, we're gonna we're gonna claim that well, you ought to take this one. This one's three thousand dollars. That one's six cents a pill. <laughs> and, and we go, you know, we go through this all the time in the United States. And the thing is, if we got results that were substantially better than everybody else out of this. You could say that that you know maybe there's an argument to be made for it. Okay, I mean you know benefit analysis is always part of the equation. The problem is we don't. We have we have of industrialized nations we have decidedly up the middle sort of results. We're nowhere near the best, and yet we have the highest cost by at least a factor of two. So, Carl, doesn't this lead down the road to rationing of care for those that want to stay in the uh, traditional established? Uh, healthcare system? And does it also uh, mean that we develop this second uh, healthcare system that is full of providers that will only accept cash from clients that can afford it? Well, yeah. And and the thing is, though, is that it, it, rationing isn't the right word for it. Let's just put it this way. It's, it's, it's going to be denial. Okay. And and the reality of it is is that that denial is going to if you do not have the money to pay privately is going to lead to death, yours. So you need to not be reliant on it. That is the only defense you're going to have, and well, the only peaceful one. I mean, there there may be an awful lot of we could get a revolution out of this. Ultimately, it could happen. Um, I don't know if it will, but. Maybe it should. I mean, there's this is none of this is accidental. This is the kind of thing that has been cooked up between politicians and business people over the space of decades. It's not going to go away in an afternoon. There is nobody in the political field 
state, local, or federal that is going to actually take it on. Donald Trump's protestations about prescription drugs notwithstanding. And this, there isn't anything you can do about the budgetary impact at this point. I mean, we, we could solve probably three quarters of the issue within the federal budget side of it uh, in an afternoon. And I've had a, a plan to do that that's been published and out on my webpage for quite a long period of time. But uh, there's there's absolutely no reason for anyone in the political sphere to take it up because, it, it like I said, it, it results in taking an immediate 15% depressionary impact in the economy. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Carl Denninger. His website is market-ticker.org. I would encourage you to check it out. Carl, always a pleasure to chat with you and love to have you back down the road. Thanks for joining us today. Anytime. Thank you. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. And thanks again to my special guest, Carl Denninger, for joining me today. You know, I was talking in the first segment of today's program about these dual realities that we are facing And these dual realities make it very difficult to plan for retirement. In fact, I believe that as we approach the end of the credit cycle and we approach the end of the currency cycle, that using traditional means to plan for retirement or manage your finances will likely fail. Now, I talked in the first segment about an article that past guest here on the program, Mr. Alistair McLeod, wrote. And the article was titled, China is Killing the Dollar. And I want to give you just a bit from this article, then I'll give you my forecast. China is now aggressively stockpiling commodities and other industrial materials, as well as food and other agricultural supplies. So why is China now aggressively stockpiling commodities and other industrial materials and food and other agricultural supplies? Well, Mr. McLeod quoted Simon Hunt, who is a China analyst. I'll give you just one quote from Mr. Hunt. This stockpiling he's referring to is an opportunity to use up some of the dollars which China has been accumulating. They can trade their U.S. government paper for tangible assets. Now, it is apparent that the Fed's policies of creating money are accelerating a move away from the U.S. dollar, but frankly, this move away from the U.S. dollar was already underway before 2020 hit, And the Fed created literally $3.5 trillion of money out of thin air. This move by China is another sign that we're moving ever closer to the end of the currency cycle. While we arrive at the conclusion of the credit cycle because of all the debt that exists at almost the same time. Now the two-bucket approach outlined in the revenue sourcing book manages money in such a way that these two dual realities are taken into account. Now, this dual reality is simply this. Unless Federal Reserve policies are suddenly and dramatically changed, we will have inflation in U.S. dollar terms, but deflation in terms of gold 
which has historically been money. In fact, in 1944, after World War II, as part of the Bretton Woods Agreement, gold was linked to the dollar and gold became money. So the forecast that I'm making is simply this. As prices in U.S. dollars continue to rise, prices in gold will continue to decline. The end of the currency cycle will mean we'll see inflation in terms of U.S. dollars, but the end of the credit cycle will mean we'll see deflation in terms of pricing those same items in gold. Now, this has been abundantly evident over the last 50 years, and it was about 50 years ago next year that then-President Nixon eliminated the link between the dollar and gold. It's been evident over the last 20 years and even over the last year. Now, I'm going to give you just a couple examples of this trend in the time I have left. I'll look at housing and automobiles, but we could come to the same conclusion looking at the prices of food or almost any other item. So let's go back 50 years when then-President Nixon eliminated the link between the U.S. dollar and gold and reneged on the promises the U.S. made as part of the Bretton Woods Agreement. That agreement said that gold and the U.S. dollar would be exchangeable openly at a rate of $35 an ounce. Well, in 1971, gold prices were $35 an ounce, and the median home sale price, according to Kay Schiller, was about $25,000. That meant it took about 714 ounces to buy a home. By calendar year 2000, 20 years ago, the median home sale price was about 135000 and the price of gold was about $250 an ounce. At that time, it took 540 ounces of gold to buy a new home. So while it took 540% more U.S. dollars to buy a home, It took only 75% of the gold it took in 1971. Now fast forward to today. The median price of a new home is $278,000 and gold is selling for about $1,950 an ounce. That means you can buy a new home for 142 ounces of gold. However, if you turn back to 1971... And look at the price of a new home in dollars. It takes 1,100% more U.S. dollars to buy a new home than it did in 1971. But priced in gold, a home can be purchased for about 20% of the gold that was required to make the same purchase in 1971. The 700 ounces of gold that would have purchased one home in 1971 purchases nearly five homes today. The same is true when you look at automobiles. A Corvette Coupe in 1971 had a base sticker price of about $5,600. Gold was $35 an ounce, so it took you about 160 ounces of gold to buy that new Corvette Coupe. Today, if you have the same 160 ounces of gold, you can buy five Corvettes, and have some gold left over, and that's with a base model sticker price on a 2020 Corvette Coupe of about $59,000. Now, I expect that we will see this trend continue. So it suggests that you should have some tangible assets in your portfolio. The book Revenue Sourcing 
We'll give you some ideas. If you don't yet have your copy, this is the last week we'll be offering the, the book on the program. Just go to revenuesourcingbook.com and let us know where to mail your copy of the book. And a quick reminder, if you don't yet have the RLA app, download it on your computer or smartphone. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and download it. The website again, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's all the time I have for this week, but I'll be back again next week. Hope to talk to you then.